Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Overthinking. Tamo, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. You've put on a very radio voice <laughs> for doing that opening segment. It's because this is our special little podcast episode, and I'm going to be a radio host. Ah, interesting. All right, what are we doing? Well, I thought, because, like, you know, given that we've had a few in-between episodes in the past, you know, four months, uh, and they've all been kind of around me, uh, as much as I, as I love talking about myself, I thought in this episode, we would kind of do an interview about you. So where I play the part of the podcast host, and you play the part of the podcast guest, and, you know, we just we just kind of have, have like a free-flowing conversation and i can see you squirming right now but don't worry this is going to be all right you got this all right let's do it let's do it so Tamor, uh welcome to the tim ferris show um thank you for for coming on hi tim big fan of your work excellent um so um further two people in the audience who don't know who you are can you just give us a you know a summary of how you've ended up here in cambridge at this point sure uh <laughs> okay, sorry. I think that was a bad question for me because now you have to basically sum up your life story. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh let's rewind. So, uh, Tamor, um, I was uh, in in doing research for this for this episode. I uh, I read that you grew up in in Africa. Can you talk to us a bit about that? What was that like? Yeah, I sort of spent the first six or so years of my life uh, in a country called Lesotho. Uh, it's actually within South Africa. It's landlocked by South Africa, uh, the Mountain Kingdom of Lesotho. Uh, I remember bits and bobs. I remember we used to do lots of outdoorsy stuff. I, I think we used to be really into climbing trees and I, I was always really into climbing trees and that was really good fun um i don't remember an awful lot i remember vague bits about school a few of our friends i remember we had a friend called mumbi and we didn't have uh, a tv in our house and so every day at 4 p.m we'd go to mumbi's house um and we'd watch tv uh we'd watch like the new pokemon episode um on four kids entertainment which was the, the tv channel um and i remember mumbi had a sister who you know in the in the breaks between you know when when pokemon takes like an advertising break uh they have this little thing where they show you like a silhouette of a Pokemon and they say who's that Pokemon da, da, da. and then like when it comes back um, like it tells you who the Pokemon is and you're, and you're sort of meant to guess and I remember she always used to like guess it wrong but then claim she got it right <laughs> oh classic Mumbi sister am I yeah, right this, so these are just a, a couple of the foundational <laughs> memories that have stuck with me yeah so um, th there was something about Pokemon then being banned I remember Tazos used to be a thing back then so there was these like plastic discs you'd get in crisp packets um, and each one would have like a picture of a Pokemon on it and I, I don't know there was like an urban myth going around that some dude got like a Charizard Tazo and jumped off a building expecting Charizard to like fly in and save him or something. I doubt that actually happened, but they were banned in school. Oh, so the urban myth that I read about was that in the, there was some kid, because the Ash Tazo was particularly sought after, and some kid like murdered his granddad because his granddad wouldn't like something to because he, like, he said the Ash Tazo told him to or something like that. Damn. And then it got banned in the schools, but then also Mumbi's mom banned Tazos. Oh, did she? And banned Pokemon, and then we couldn't watch Pokemon anymore. Oh, I don't remember um, that. So yeah, that was just something uh, I, I heard on Twitter while doing research for this <laughs> for this episode. Anyway, um, so that was your upbringing. So w when did you leave Lesotho? I think it was around age six. Okay, and then and then what happened? So my, I think my mom sort of moved to the UK to start setting up camp there, and for a year we lived with our aunt in Pakistan. And so I think, or I went to year two in the UK uh, in in Pakistan. Okay, and can you remember much about the transition between so life in schools in Africa versus life in schools in Pakistan? I say Africa. 
as if it's a single country, life in Lesotho. Honestly, I don't remember it being too different. Not that I was aware of at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's like one of those things like when you've grown up in a certain place, it just seems completely normal to you and you don't really think about how it's slightly, it's kind of different to maybe the experience that your friends would have had growing up. I guess so. But I mean, this, I think the schools we went to were fairly, fairly good, fairly standard, not too, too different from, yeah, between Pakistan and Lesotho. All right. Um, so if we fast forward now to what you're doing at the moment. So you've been kind of making waves on Twitter about this new, this new app, this new business that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm working on a, a company called Causal with a friend of mine from university. Uh, we're trying to build a, a new kind of modeling tool to, re to replace spreadsheets, essentially. Uh, an enormous amount of the world's GDP flows through spreadsheet models um, and companies make all their decisions based on models that they build in spreadsheets. And by model, I mean something you use to kind of make sense of the world numerically. So for example, you might have a financial model that forecasts how much money your company is going to make next month. Uh, and that's just like a very basic example that most people kind of imagine. But companies have models for all sorts of things. Uh, essentially, we feel like spreadsheets aren't the best tool for building models. Um, and it's about time someone built a better one and we're trying to do that. So it's sort of like how some people would use, for example, a spreadsheet to manage a football league that their kids are playing in. Um, but that's not really what spreadsheets were designed for. Spreadsheets were designed for accounting. Yeah. And so you're sort of making an app equivalent to sort of a custom football league manager, but, you know, to try and take away that functionality from Excel. Yeah. So like Excel is so flexible and so easy to use that you can do pretty much anything in it. Um, and so we think this one particular thing you can do in it, which is modeling, we think that is so important and so valuable that it deserves its own standalone tool that's really optimized for building models. And so we're trying to build this tool. Okay. So this sounds like very niche. And I've, I've heard you trying to like, try and explain it a few times to, <laughs> to various people. But um, how how did you have the idea for this? Like, how did you get from graduating university to then suddenly deciding you want to make this modeling software for Microsoft Excel to make, replace Microsoft Excel? Make modeling great again, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting you say it sounds really niche because from, from a consumer point of view, it is weird and esoteric and niche. You know, most consumers would say, what is modeling? You know, I didn't know people use spreadsheets for that and so on. F from a business point of view, it's actually extremely general. And like, we're building this really general tool um, that a wide range of people will be able to use. So it's, it's not very niche from a business point of view and we think it's actually a really far-reaching problem okay so how do you um, how do, how do you come up so how, I, how do you come up with this idea yeah sure so i used to be a data scientist at a company called nested here in the uk um then the property space they sort of uh, guarantee you a certain amount of money on your house so essentially they take risks on property uh so instead of you having to sell your house you know put it on the market wait a few months to find a buyer there's a lot of uncertainty there you don't know when it's going to finish you don't know when you can move into your next home what nested do is that you go to them and they guarantee you something like 95 percent of your house's market value and then you can move on with your life you can like put an offer on your next place you can even move into your next place uh, before your previous place is sold and so nested essentially takes risk on with every deal they do um, and so they they had you know models to kind of figure out you know how much money do we have in the bank now and how many deals can we do next month and so on um, and these models started off in spreadsheets and as a data scientist one of the projects i worked on was to move these out of spreadsheets and into python to solve various problems with uh with spreadsheet models um, and it sort of got me thinking that you know it's kind of weird that there isn't a good way for non-technical people but people who are still sort of smart and analytical to kind of build models properly and build sophisticated models and scalable models properly. Okay, so you're saying that either a company is using Excel to manage all of its stuff or they've hired a data scientist to actively convert those models into code, but there's no real middle ground. Um, there's no easy way for normal people to, as in people who don't know how to code Python to, to create these models. Uh, I mean, you can. And and like, you know, all, all the massive financial firms are basically doing all their stuff in spreadsheets as well. And these spreadsheets are insane. You know, dozens of different tabs um, that they've, they've all developed their own sort of design patterns to use spreadsheets most effectively. Um, and so they have ways of like getting around the various problems with spreadsheets. And then sort of companies that are really serious about this. They pay for like extra plugins and extra systems on top of the Excel spreadsheet itself to sort of do version control. So you can see, oh, when 
was this last change? What was the change? Um, and to do things like collaboration. Um, but currently, it all, it all feels very hacked together. Um, and so we're trying to build a modeling tool that kind of encompasses all the things people care about. Okay, so it sounds like what you identified when you were working at Nested was you found like a pain point that, oh, it's, it's a bit weird that I have to do this. But I'm curious as to how you got from that particular pain point to why don't I make a business based around creating software to solve this problem? Like, how do you go from that from A to B? Uh, the, the first answer to the question is that I was thinking of ideas that I might be interested in starting a business around. I, I've sort of always been into doing my own thing, tried various money-making things over the years, and I sort of decided that, you know, I want to start a tech company. It seems like a, a pretty valuable thing to do and, and quite an achievable thing to do as well. And so I was, in my day-to-day -day life, I was always sort of thinking of ideas. I think the more interesting question might be that, you know, let's say you do face a problem like, oh, okay, nested we're using spreadsheets for cash flow forecasting. Um, and that's a problem. The solution you might think of could be something along the lines of, why don't we make a cash flow forecasting software that any company can just plug their data into and it automatically does the cash flow forecast them. So like, uh, this is what's called like a vertical solution. Um, you're building a tool for a very specific kind of use in a very specific kind of industry. Um, whereas the thing that I found more interesting was taking more of a horizontal approach, which is building like a very general tool that's not specific to any use case or any industry, but that anyone can pick up and use a bit like Excel, a bit like things like Airtable, things like Retool. Okay, so <clears throat> I imagine if most people kind of discovered an inefficiency at work, like for example, you know, I work as a doctor, I don't know if you've heard. Uh, oh, damn. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of inefficiencies within the system, but there's almost no one I know who would, find, who would identify an inefficiency and think, huh, you know what, why don't I build a piece of software to combat this inefficiency? So what do you think it is about you and about kind of like your experience growing up that has led you to have that sort of mindset rather than just be like, okay, cool, I guess I'll just have to spend some time doing this thing in Excel? I don't think there's anything too profound here. I mean, I've just been sort of drinking the tech startup Kool-Aid for quite a few years. Ever since I watched sort of the social network when I was 16, I've sort of learned to code and have always been interested in starting like a tech company. Um, and so, I've just, yeah, I've just kind of been aware that this is a thing people do. People see problems, they build software and they build companies to solve these problems. Uh, and that's quite a valuable thing. Uh, I've essentially just seen it play out a bunch of times, a bunch of stories, um, and have decided I want to go down that path too. Cool. Um, so how did you teach yourself to code? I saw that you had a post on Medium where you kind of talk, talked about this a little bit. Can you kind of give us the background? Yeah, sure. So in my, as a teenager, I spent a lot of time sort of doing design stuff like graphic design and logo design and Photoshop and image editing. So I was always really into the design side of things. Um, and I actually, for most of my life, I, th well, I say most of my life, for, for a while, I thought that like coding was this really arcane, unachievable thing. It's, oh, it sounds really complicated. I definitely can't do that. But then watching the social network kind of made me realize that, oh, actually it is just kind of kids in their bedroom who make Facebook. That's how things work. Um, so it kind of gave me the, the confidence to believe in myself, whatever you want to call it, that like, okay, I can actually do this. Um, and so the way I went about it was I tried to think of like an idea of a website that I wanted to build. Um, and so the idea I came up with was Clickfilia. Uh, and this Sorry, was- uh, Clickfilia. Clickfilia, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was uh, sort of a distillation of every online game ever, uh, except it was a, a, a game distilled to its like core form, which was that you click a button and you get a point. And so on Clickfilia, you made an account, there was a big button and you sort of kept clicking that button. Every time you clicked it, you get a point. Um, and so the more you click the button, the more points you have, the higher up the leaderboard you are. Um, and so I thought that would just be like a fun, funny thing to make. Uh, the approach I didn't take was to like do an online course or buy a book about HTML 
HTML or how to make websites. Um, I've, I've never really learned particularly well through things like that. And I find that I learn best when I'm, I have like an actual goal in mind that I want to accomplish rather than just learning sort of dry content for the sake of it. Um, and so I had this idea. Uh, the next step was like figuring out, okay, here's the web, here's, here's like the idea I want to build. How do I actually do it? Um, and this all came down to an online forum called Facepunch, facepunch.com. I think it's still around. I used to frequent this forum when I was younger. Um, and this forum was hugely valuable when it came to learning how to code, even like learning image editing, learning photography, video editing, all this stuff I was into back in the day. Um, people on this forum, you know, there were different sections for these things. And I'd sort of see what everyone's up to, ask questions on there. And so I literally started off saying, hey guys, I want to learn how to make websites. I have this idea. What do I need to build this? And then, you know, people said, okay, so you need to learn HTML for this and that. And you need to learn CSS for this. And you need a thing called a server. And you need like a, a way to like program this service. So you're going to write a language called PHP and you need a database and you're going to use a database called MySQL. Um, and they basically laid out the path for me. So like having this community of people helping me out was really, really valuable. And if honestly, if I didn't have that, I would have probably given up very quickly. Okay. So you have this idea for this, for this game where someone clicks a button and it just gives them points on a leaderboard and you decided to reach out to, an, to a forum of strangers and be like, hey, how do I do this? Yeah. And then and then did you just kind of like Google things as you went along and, and solve problems along the way? Yeah, pretty much. And honestly, I had no clue what was going on for most of that first website. Like I literally, you know, for example, one of the things the site needed was a way to sign up and a way to log in. Um, and I had no understanding of like programming really at this point, but I found some like script on about.com, like the most generic like <laughs> Q&A site. I found some some like PHP sign up and login script. And I literally copied that with no idea what it does, what things different parts do, and just like hacked at it until something worked. Um, and honestly, that probably wasn't the best approach. I think when it comes to learning stuff, I always, my, my main method is to just do a bunch of trial and error and hopefully eventually I'll develop some intuition around how the thing works. Whereas I think the right way to go about it and the way that's probably more optimal for me is to do a bit of trial and error and then do a bit of actual reading to understand, you know, this is what this thing means in PHP. This is what that thing means. Um, and sort of go back and forth between, uh, yeah, trial and error and actual reading up on theory. Okay. So uh, how long did it take you to make Clickfilia in total? I don't remember. Probably... We're talking, we're talking months or years or what? Definitely not years. Probably month okay. or months. Okay. And you were just kind of hacking away at it in your spare time? Yeah. Okay. After school. And then how did how did it go when, when you launched it? <laughs> I say launched in inverted commas. Um, I, I remember I made a thread about it on the forum and everyone thought it was kind of entertaining because like it's a bit of a silly concept. So I think a bunch of people from the forum used it. I sent it around to a bunch of my friends at school so they used it as well. Uh, it was just like a fun thing that lasted about a week where like my friends and I would kind of play around with it. They'd try and figure out how to hack it. You know, eventually they'd figure out ways. Oh, okay, we can like leave this thing running overnight that spams the button for us and so on. Uh, the more interesting thing was that I, uh, on the, in the sign up thing, I wasn't like encrypting anyone's passwords. And so the password you entered on the on your Clickfilly account was actually just plain text. And if I went into the database, I could see exactly what you typed in. And so a bunch of my, uh, you know, most of my friends use the, the same password they use for other things. Um, actually, this is, this is pretty questionable, but <laughs> for a couple of people, I did try their password on other things. And I remember I managed to get into one of my other friend's Minecraft account. <laughs> Minecraft account? By using the username and password that they just got <laughs> Clickfilly. <laughs> oh, 
That sounds very questionable. Unethical stuff. Unethical yeah. stuff. But obviously, you would encrypt passwords if you were to make something these days. Obviously. Obviously. Um, okay. So, 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 click failure was your first project. What was your What was your second? Because I remember in this medium post, you said it took you three projects to learn how to code. And do you still stand by that kind of that number? Um, what was the second project? I think the second project was a was it Curate or was it Confidere? Yeah, I'm trying to think. So, I think it might well have been uh, a site called Curate. I still stand by this. I think this is one of the best ideas I've ever had. The idea was that uh, there's a lot of content on the internet. Google searching finds you some stuff, but you still have to know what you're looking for. Um, and let's say, okay, let's say you're me and you were trying to teach yourself photography when you were like 15 or something. You kind of have to scroll f- through forums. You have to go on Google, search for a bunch of things. Honestly, a lot of the time you don't even know what to search for. Like searching for how to learn photography isn't super helpful. It wasn't back then. Um, and so eventually you find like a bunch of different links that have been useful to you and almost as like curriculum of things that you've read. And I thought it'd be really useful if people could com- compile these lists of links, um, sort of curate these lists of links on various topics, and then other people can get value from them. So let's say you've taught yourself photography, you can save like the most helpful links in a list called, you know, Photography 101. And then the next person who wants to learn photography doesn't have to do all the work, they kind of just go on your list and read what you read. And I still stand by this idea of like curated lists of links or lists of things. Um, there's various takes on this idea that are uh, quite popular nowadays. Pinterest isn't too far from it. It's more driven by pictures, um, by sort of boards where you collect pictures on a certain topic. Uh, various people have tried to start other sites to do with links of things. Um, but most of these sites have the sort of chicken and egg problem of like, you know, viewers of the site won't really go on it unless there's a lot of content and no one's really going to be creating content unless there are people who are going to view it. And so like kickstarting these kinds of uh, marketplaces isn't quite the right word, uh, but these content room sites are really hard. Okay, so you had the idea for curate, and then you decided, you know, you, you know, what, I'm just going to code this. Yeah, and you built it, and you kind of took your skills from coding clickfilia and applied that to curate. Get, yeah, get code curate. Yeah, there was a bunch of new stuff I had to sort of learn along the way. Uh, but yeah, that was basically it. My forum helped out a lot, as always. Okay, and how old were you around this time? Probably seventeen. Okay, so like in sixth form, year twelve. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so curate was project number two, and what, okay, what, what was project number three? Uh, that was a online anonymous confessions site called confide.re okay what is basically what it says on the tin you can anonymously submit confessions uh, and then other people can view them and upvote them and that kind of thing okay well, what kind of confession submissions did you get um what did anyone actually use the site yeah no one really used it i sent it to some friends i think a few random people on the internet came across it and confessed stuff but nothing yeah i don't know i don't remember okay, cool so it was it was kind of these three quote failed projects that taught you how to code and then from that point on would you have called yourself a coder would you have like how how did you think about the idea of coding the idea of kind of being a software developer? Uh, Honestly, I didn't really think about it because I wasn't, I didn't really know this was a thing people did as a career. I didn't know this was like a job people did. It was just like a fun thing I did on the side. And looking back, if if after making Curate, I proclaimed, ah, I know how to code now, uh, that would have been insane because literally I still had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Even now, I'm not terribly good at lots of pots of... uh, coding. Um, And so I feel like a lot of people say the phrase learn how to code and like, oh yeah, I can code. And I think it means lots of different things. Uh, And I think for me, the thing I cared about reaching was a point where if I had an idea for a random website or a random project, I could build it, you know, feasibly by myself with a bit of help from the internet in like a few weeks or a few months. Okay. And I I think I did reach that point after the third project or so. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because that's kind of how I define quote, knowing how to code to people. Like if if, when people ask me for advice about kind of how to 
make money online or how to how to how to learn coding and i kind of I, I kind of explained that this idea of quote, learning to code is, is is kind of a nebulous concept, like how do we even define it? And the way I would is, you know, if I had an idea for something like Facebook or something like Twitter right now, would I be able to feasibly make a minimal viable product like a V0.1 of it? Um, and would I kind of know what to Google in order to get there? And I think that's a big part of, of learning how to code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so have you got any advice for people who have heard your story and think it's, it's cool that you kind of, oh, you know, you taught yourself to code when you were like 15 by doing these random projects that are completely irrelevant. And now you're building this software startup thing um it seems i don't know it's it's it seems like like i know a lot of people who 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 have kind of started off trying trying to learn coding but i don't know many people at all who have sort of reached the point where they're now essentially going full-time on trying to make their own thing i think for me if i'd started trying to learn when i was at university i would have probably given up uh, at some point during the journey uh it it did take like a ton of time you now sort of all my evenings and weekends and holidays i was mainly spending doing this uh, punctuated by watching tv shows um and if i i think the, the thing it came down to for me was that I had this community on this online forum that I could go to any time with any question and they'd sort of point me in the right direction. And that like, you know, reduced the amount of time it took to learn this thing by an enormous amount. Like if I didn't have that community to go to with random questions, it would have taken so much longer and I would probably given up. Okay. So I think finding finding like a community of helpful people around the thing that you're interested in is really helpful. And then like that also leads to sort of role models. So people on this forum, like some of them were sort of extremely good at this stuff. Some of them now, you know, run extremely successful you know companies uh you know that do millions of revenue and so on and th these are all people from like this forum um where one of the people from this forum who used to kind of help me out and who you know we used to sort of hang out together he now works at facebook uh developing some like really core really hard tech stuff for them um and you know he was some dude who i used to hang out with on this forum uh you might remember the game 2048 that went viral oh, yes. uh, a few years ago that was a dude on this on this forum i was on um yeah he used to help me out a lot great guy so yeah just finding like a community of role models mentors and peers and helpers and that's that's really really valuable so is there anything out there like these because because like i feel like forum, forums are now quote dead to be yeah to be honest i've been out i've been out of the forum scene for a while i don't know i i'm sure they still exist i'm sure people still do this stuff yeah um yeah specifically for coding you have like stack overflow now which is like a q a site for programming questions yeah but it's not quite the same thing it's not quite a community of like friends in inverted commas okay that's interesting and and earlier said that yeah earlier you said that you had some money making ideas that you dabbled with in school can you can you share some of these with us like how did you try and make money online oh i did loads of stuff uh probably the most legit stuff i did was like design work for people so i used to sort of design websites and logos uh for people on the internet through various kind of freelancing sites like fiverr.com uh and i made a bit of money doing that i made a bit of money doing psychic readings online on fiverr.com psychic readings psychic readings basically people would come to me um they'd tell me a bit about themselves and maybe tell me about a problem they're having in their life at the moment. And I'd sort of uh, give them a psychic reading where I'm essentially selling them some hope for $5. Um, and I would get $4 out of that. And I think I, I did about you know, 20 or 25 of these. And I, I made about $100 when I was uh, 16 doing psychic readings. $100. That's quite a lot of money. <laughs> that was a lot of money back in those days. Yeah. How how did you do psychic readings? Like, what's what's the kind of background behind this? Like, wh how, how on earth can you do psychic readings and people actually pay you for them? Uh, so it's all about being uh, in touch with the spiritual world the occult oh, okay <laughs> yeah no i mean there's a technique called cold reading which uh i mean you dabbled in sort of magic and stuff so i'm sure you're really familiar with this where essentially you'll you'll say statements that sound very specific and sound like they're very personalized but actually apply to lots of different people um so you might say something like oh you seem like the kind of person who you know has strong opinions but you don't always state them you know and like literally you say that to anyone they'll probably agree that yeah i have opinions on things and yeah i don't always say my opinions but what you said sounds 
sounds quite personal and quite specific. So I think, whoa, this guy's a psychic. <laughs> and you, uh, if you, if the person already believes that psychics exist, and you make a few of these statements, that'll get you enough credibility for them to then believe whatever thing you're then about to tell them, which is like predicting the future. So basically, the format was they tell me a bit about themselves. I'd, I'd do a, f a few like cold reading statements, which can really apply to anyone, mm. and then I'd sort of predict the future about whatever problem they kind of came to me with, right? Okay, so what kind of problems do people come to you with in this? Um, most of them were like fairly trivial and like uh, trivial. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, that's harsh. That's <laughs> that, harsh. That, that's not very nice. No, no, not trivial. Not trivial, but like these these people paid five dollars to have the problem solved. <laughs> they weren't trivial problems, but it was it was just like oh, you know, like I I have a bad feeling about this sort of new job. Should I take this job? Or whatever. It was stuff like that, which is absolutely not trivial. Um, and I, I used to basically give very generic answers because I didn't want to like actually tell people what to do with their lives. Um, but the, it sort of went too far, I think, when someone asked for a psychic reading, told me that I think they basically they think their spouse is cheating on them and they like have evidence that their spouse is cheating on them and like what should they do about this or something. It was like really serious. Like they were about to like break up their marriage over <laughs> what I was about to tell them on this psychic reading. Uh, maybe that's not the case. Maybe they had other, other sources <laughs> um, of advice. But at that point I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to hang up my robe and wizard hats and, and call it quits. Bloody hell, so, so, so around the time where, where you were like 15, 16, and people are coming to you for psychic readings and asking for advice about what to do about their cheating spouse. Yeah, those um, wild times, mate, wild pretty times. Pretty surreal experience, I might say. <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. So there's... Uh, it seems like despite your, uh, your sort of ranting and raving against the advice-giving industry, you were on the advice-giving industry from about the age of 12, from what I hear, on, on, on this other forum. Do you know what I'm, what, what, what I'm referring to? I just kind of heard that heard that on Twitter. Somewhere. Oh, yeah, I just heard that on the grapevine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I used to be really active on Facepunch, and then I used to be fairly active on a UK student forum called The Student Room. Um, and on The Student Room, uh, my sort of uh, area of expertise was not maths, it wasn't studying, it wasn't revising for exams, it was... The health and relationship section uh, where people would come mostly with like love advice type questions you know oh i like this girl i don't know if she likes me back what should i do about it or like oh i think i think this boy likes me you know this kind of stuff um yeah and uh, i used to be the guru the guru the, the love <laughs> guru, guru. <laughs> yeah <laughs> who would solve their problems. And at the time you were like 12, 13. This, was, this went on from about age 13 to about last week. No, <laughs> uh, about age 13 to 17. So age 13, so for four years, you were, you were this anonymous love guru on, on the student room. Yes. Uh, what sort of questions did, did people come to you with and, and, and what sort of advice did you give that gave you the status of love guru? Uh, let me be clear. They weren't specifically coming to me. They were making a thread on this forum and I would be one of the people that replied to what they'd asked. Okay. Um, honestly, the questions were all very standard. I, I can't remember any any them specifically and i think my advice was all pretty sensible uh, i think if we went back and found those posts i'd probably i'd probably stand by most of it and there's probably a few things i said that were, that were probably like really stupid and problematic that i didn't stand by um okay i think that'll be interesting to do sometime yeah let's uh, <laughs> we should do a podcast episode where we go over your previous uh, health and relationships advice and dissect whether it's, <laughs> it's, it's reasonable or not yeah exactly that'd be good however my student room account got banned because you decided to use it to shill for your you know medical preparation courses business hey i was uh it was very subtle shilling like well, not subtle enough it got banned <laughs> uh, no but only after two years like i was i was subtly shilling for two years <laughs> on the student room subtly 
advertising these courses. And the student room was kind of the main source of traffic and like the main reason why these courses end up doing well. Because we had your account that had so much good karma and you had like eight reputation points or something stupid like that. And you had like this animated GIF as your avatar, which was which wasn't allowed. Um, and that is what allowed me to sort of st suddenly stop posting medical advice sort of on top on top of your background of health and relationships advice. So thank you for that. That was very kind of you. No worries. Uh, so the... The other thing that you seem to be known for, apart from kind of this whole causal thing, is you seem to be known for being a prolific thinker on Twitter. <gasps> like, can you, uh, like, uh, how do you get into Twitter? And like, what does it take to become a prolific thinker on Twitter? Uh, I think you might be overstating my <laughs> my level of prolificness and knownness. I'm a relatively small pond in the, uh, small fish in the Twitter pond. Uh, but I got into it sort of I started using Twitter when I was about 16. I made an account because I was obsessed with a TV show called Modern Family. And I wanted to follow all the actors and producers and directors of Modern Family on Twitter. Um, and so that's why I started using it. And then in sixth form, a few people in my year were also using it. And so it was kind of banter you had with school friends uh, just on Twitter. Uh, and then I kind of stopped using it for a while. But... A few months ago, maybe like six six to eight months ago, I got properly back into it. And I now see like this incredible use of Twitter as a way to kind of make like-minded friends and take part in sort of discussions with people from around the world on things you care about. And so the things I care about are things, a lot of it are like things to do with tech. And so a lot of the people I follow and a lot of people that follow me are kind of people in tech. Um, and, you know, people post things, you know, people reply to them. It, it's a bit like... It's a bit like the whole online forum thing, but kind of reinvented for twenty, you know, but twenty sixteen onwards or something, where you're kind of interacting with strangers, except people are using their real names and stuff, which kind of makes things a lot more legit. Um, and it's just an amazing way to kind of, yeah, just discuss things with people, man. That sounds really abstract, right? Do you, do you understand what I mean? Uh, no, not really. So like my view of Twitter is, so I've got some friends who are on, who are on Twitter who have like 50,000 tweets, but they would, for example, post 80 times a day being like drinking coffee now or, oh God, Amber on Love Island is such a bitch. You, you know, that that sort of stuff. But that, but like that's kind of the main use case of Twitter that I see in my life, but that's not really what you go for. I don't think you really care about Amber on Love Island. Uh, yeah, no, no offense to Amber, but I don't really care about Amber on Love Island. I think the I think the there are people who use Twitter sort of in this way, but like much better and for much longer. Who have written really good guides to like getting value out of Twitter online, and we'll link to some of those. But I think the key is to like find a couple of niches that you're into. In my case, that's sort of some tech stuff, and then some like I I think the best term to describe it is post-rationalist. <laughs> so I'm like post-rationalist. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> um, it's hot. It's really hard to say what it means. But essentially, there are groups of people on Twitter who all follow each other and who all tweet about similar topics and respond to each other. So there's these like sort of mini communities within Twitter on various topics. The key is to sort of find these mini communities you care about, follow the people within those communities and just start engaging with them. Start like responding to the things they tweet with your own thoughts or whatever, like in a, you know, in a productive way that adds value to everyone else. And eventually, you know, once sort of someone within this community, let's say that someone within the post-rationalist community, um, you know, sees that my name come up a bunch of times over a period of a few weeks, then they might, you know, think, oh, this uh, Tamor guy, I've seen his name crop up a lot. He, you know, his replies are pretty good. Let's go check out his profile and see what he's like. And then they'll like see a few of your tweets and then, you know, they might favorite a couple of them and then they'll follow you. And now you're sort of followed by someone in this community. And now when you tweet stuff, they'll see it. Um, and, you know, if they like it, they'll engage with it. They might retweet it. And then when other people in this community eventually stumble across your profile because you've engaged with stuff, they'll see, oh, this guy's followed by this other guy who I already follow and really value. And so this guy must be legit. It's it's really just like making friends, uh, 
but just sort of online by engaging with people. Okay, so, so that's kind of the engagement side of it. How? What about like like how, how do you know what to tweet? Is it just kind of links to stuff in articles you discover, or like how? Yeah, how do, I you, think how lots, do you do it? Lots of people have different styles, and it like depends on the community you're trying to be a part of. So, for example, if you're a venture capitalist and you are part of VC Twitter, what you want to do, right, is you want to tweet things that sound really profound about tech stuff, and you want to you know be a thought leader in tech. Uh, and I'm being kind of mean uh, right now because I'm sort of joking about this. And there's lots of like meme VC meme accounts that take the piss out of VC Twitter because they have a very particular way of tweeting and very like particular sets of things they tweet about. Okay. Um, but essentially different com communities work in different ways. In general, the way I think the people who get a lot of value out of Twitter are not just tweeting, you know, a link to a thing they read every day. It's more about like sharing their own thoughts. And that might be sharing their own thoughts about a thing that's, you know, doing the rounds or that's been in the press lately and sort of giving your thoughts on that. Um, you know, in the post-rationalist kind of space, it's just like... Uh yeah, tweeting. Uh, I, I really don't know how to describe it. Just tweeting s stuff <laughs> about life, life and stuff <laughs> uh, in a particular way with a particular kind of analytical lens, um, and then sort of engaging with people on that. In tech, it's about like uh, you know tweeting, but yeah, just tweeting your thoughts, man. That's all it's about. What do you mean tweeting your thoughts? Sharing like, you your know, thoughts. I've got a thought right now that you know. What's the next question I'm going to ask? I'm not going to post that on Twitter, or maybe I should, and people reply. Yeah, I mean, people use it in different ways. I'm I'm sort of scrolling through it now to try and find an example. Oh man, I had an incredible moment on Twitter. Today. Day. On the train here, we're in Cambridge right now um, at your flat, um, at our flat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on the train here, I was thinking about. I had a I had a phone call this morning uh, with someone who is hopefully going to start using our product. And during that conversation, I found that um, at the start of the conversation, I had two things I wanted to say, and these two things were quite kind of short and kind of disconnected. But I wanted to say them, um, and so I found myself using a kind of phrase to bridge these two things. So I said, like you know, thing one. I said, I, I think I said something along the lines of like, oh, thanks so much for like signing up. Um, um, you know, what? how did you come across Causal just out of interest? Um, and then they gave an answer. And then the next thing I wanted to say was that uh, they work for a company that I think is really cool and I really admire. And I wanted to basically say, oh, by the way, I think your company is really cool. Um, but instead of just like saying... Saying, oh, by the way, I think your company is really yeah, cool. Yeah, instead of saying, I'm a big fan of this, I felt the need to kind of bridge my... Uh, make a bridge between the previous statement, which was about like, you know, how did you find out about Causal? And the next statement was completely disconnected. And so I, I said something like, so look, I'm a big fan of, you know, what you guys are doing or you know that kind of thing and this sort of so look thing that i said so was like okay. a, a bridging phrase and i sort of caught myself saying that obviously at the time i didn't get into this discussion on the call but afterwards i sort of got thinking hmm i definitely did that i definitely did that intentionally why did i like feel the need to have this bridging phrase right and look the reason i'm saying it <laughs> <And> look, <laughs> see again again um so basically i post on twitter saying it's weird that it feels weird to make disconnected statements and i sort of recounted this kind of interaction and then i sort of tagged a few people um, one of whom I follow and who follows me back and two of whom I follow but they don't follow me I just sort of tag these people saying can anyone shed any light on this because this is something these kinds of people sort of talk about um, and then one of the people who I follow but doesn't follow me back he is like the one of the world's leading experts on uh, conversational analysis um, he is a lecturer in social psychology um, a researcher in the philosophy of science ethnomethodology and conversation analysis this guy within five minutes replies to me saying see Harvey Sachs 1987 on the preferences for agreement and contiguity in sequences and conversation in talk and social organization. He basically quotes me a reference for like an academic thing that describes what I like tweeted about. And that's incredible, man. Like I'm sitting on a train, tweet out this random th 
thought of like, huh, isn't it weird that like I said this thing? All of a sudden, world leading expert comes in, says, yep, this is in the academic literature here and here. He also says, DM me for a PDF. Then I DM'd him. He sent me a PDF. He sent me an email with like a bunch of other links. Um, and this is it, man. This is the magic of the Twitter hive mind. You just oh, say wow. something and people engage with you. I'm now like connected with this guy. He now follows me back. It's it's wonderful. Oh, damn. Okay, that's pretty incredible. I think you've inspired me to start actively thinking about how I use Twitter better. Yeah. Because like it's it's quite big amongst certain sort of aspects where certain people within the medical community, like a lot of people would kind of tweet like like this sort of stuff back and forth at each other and did kind of retweet each other. And especially within within specialties. So like all the, all the kind of pro cardiologists are all mates on Twitter and people are trying to break into cardiology by sort of snaking their way into Twitter. Yeah. So I think, I think this might be, might be a good, a good avenue. Yeah. And there's very real career value in it as well. Like a ton of people who now work in like tech and venture capital literally swear by Twitter as the way that they got broke into tech or broke into these careers. And it's like the new way of doing networking and networking isn't even the right word because networking sort of has associations with like, you know, going to some drinks event and like schmoozing people or whatever. It literally is just making friends with people online based on things you think about. And, uh, you know, these friends might be randos off the street and they might be people who can give you a job in, in the thing you care about. Oh, okay. That's pretty awesome. So it's it sounds like you've gotten a lot of value out of Twitter over the over the years. Enormous value. I mean, just over the past few months, because that's when I've been doing this kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Sweet. You've inspired me to, to get started on Twitter. Um, just a few kind of, if we if we end with some uh, rapid fire questions then, these are going to be like rapid fire questions from my, from my end, but your answers don't need to be, you know, they can be as short as long as you like. All right. Um, do you have any favorite, let's say items costing $100 or less that have added most value to your life in recent memory? Honestly, I don't think I have any. <laughs> any items costing $100 <laughs> or less? <laughs> no. So there was a um, um, a bit a bit that you did about about a kitchen bin and like and like a, like a backpack. I, I I know you were in the market for those. Yeah, unfortunately, those are both over hundred dollars. Um, both of what? Both were over a hundred dollars. No, you know, just a hundred dollars as a random sort of like not yeah. inaccessible, like obviously not like a Lamborghini or something. Yeah. Um, I think one thing I've been thinking a lot recently is that I'm really glad I bought a single speed bike. I ride my bike every day. It's the way I get to and from the station. It's the way I sort of travel around St Albans. Uh, and historically, we've always had like like mountain bikes or whatever, you know, with dual disc brakes and, you know, 18 gears and suspension and all that stuff. Um, but this time when I decided to get my bike about two years ago, I thought, no, I want something really simple. I got a, a, a bike with one gear, you know, single speed. And it's really simplified the whole process because I think I don't really have the anxiety of like, oh, am I in the most optimal gear for this incline that I'm currently doing on this road? There's no thought process at all. In a, in a bike, like the first thing to break is usually the gears. The gears kind of get screwed up and then your experience is really bad. And so just buying like a really simple bike, I, I really appreciate that I did that. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, when you think of the word successful, who comes to mind? No one comes to mind. I I, uh, I don't subscribe to this success thing. Okay. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think, okay, you're going to say I do subscribe to it just with a different definition, but I think the sort of uh, usual definitions of success are so baked into the word that I don't want to use the same word to describe it. I think all that matters in life is living intentionally in the long and short term. Um, and if someone is doing that, it's, it's really hard for me to know if anyone else is actually doing that. You know, Elon Musk, maybe he hates his life and actually this is not what he wants to be doing, but he just kind of fell into it or something. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't think I can make a judgment on that. I think all that matters is living intentionally uh, in the short and long term. Um, if someone's doing that, I think that's sick and I'd, I'll aspire to, to do that myself. Okay. Um, is there a book or books that you have most often gifted or would like to gift to people? I think The Courage to be Disliked is extremely good. Uh, it's a very a very novel and a very... Uh, the, the, the sort of worldview it proposes is completely the opposite of what you normally hear. And so I think it's really interesting. I hope so. What do you mean? <coughs> 
one particularly sort of controversial thing that is said that stuck with me is this idea that, uh, you know, I think that the, the usual narrative is that some action happens and then we have involuntary feelings based on that action, you know? So something happens in our life and then we might feel angry about it or we might feel happy about it or whatever. Um, and the book basically proposes that the things we feel are the things we want to feel. If we are having an angry outburst, is it is because we want to have had that angry outburst and we are creating the feelings of anger to satisfy this desire to have an angry outburst and things like that. And that was like pretty, pretty groundbreaking, pretty controversial stuff that I hadn't really heard before. Okay. And do you subscribe to that notion? I think I do. Okay. Interesting. I suppose, you know, for a more a more detailed discussion, people can read the book. Yeah. But that's, this has certainly piqued, piqued my curiosity. Yeah. There's stuff like that. And there's a few other bits and bobs in there that have really stuck with me. Okay. Cool. Um, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, what message would you want that billboard to say? Something along the lines of live intentionally, but that doesn't mean anything to anyone without any context. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably just shill my startup. <laughs> Causal.app. <coughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been a, an interesting and entertaining discussion. Uh, I hope our audience have found it helpful. Um, is there any uh, sort of uh, final ask or any request that you'd uh, you'd uh, like of my audience? I'd really encourage people to start using Twitter, man. Start using Twitter. Find the communities you care about. Start engaging and make make online friends. It's brilliant. Okay, fantastic. Well, you've certainly inspired me to start doing that. And, and finally, just to end up, uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at tamerabdal. That's T. T-A-I-M-U-R-A-B-D-A-A-L. My personal website is tamor.me, T-A-I-M-U-R dot M-E. Um, those are the main ones. You can find links to other stuff from there. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for featuring in this interview episode of, of Not Overthinking. Um, if you guys are uh, listening in, if you found this inter- interesting or helpful, then please could you re- leave us a, re- a review on the iTunes store or on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, if you have any thoughts about the episode, then please send an email to hi at notoverthinking.com and one of us will get back to you, hopefully in a timely fashion. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you next week. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye.